Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp, a Star Trek podcast. Join us on our continuing mission to explore intersectional diversity and infinite combinations. My name is Grace, and thanks for tuning in. With me today are Jara. Hello. And our special guest, Jonathan. Hi, everyone. Before we get into our main topic, we have a little bit of housekeeping to do first. If you were listening closely to today's intro, you may have noticed a bit of a change. After a successful five-year mission together, Roddenberry Podcasts and Women at Warp will be plotting our own courses. Roddenberry is going to be focusing more on content they're producing in-house, and we at Women at Warp are looking forward to being a fully independent show. Just like Riker had to eventually take his own command, just like Odo had to go heal in the Great Link, Just like the entire crew of Discovery had to jump into the 32nd century, it's time for us to start our next adventure. So thanks to Rod Roddenberry and co. for the last five years, we will always be part of the same Star Trek family. But yeah, that's that's how it's going. Awesome. Yeah. Now, as per usual, our show is made possible by our patrons on Patreon. If you'd like to become a patron, you could do so for as little as a dollar a month and get awesome rewards from thanks on social media up to silly watch-along commentaries. Visit www.patreon.com forward slash women at warp. Also, do you like our show and do you like merch? You should check out our Tee Public store. There are so many designs with new ones being added all the time and on so much more than just t shirts. Find it at tpublic.com forward slash stores forward slash women at warp. So, Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Um, would you like to tell us a little bit about you and your star history with Star Trek? Yeah, I'd love to. So Jonathan Alexandratus, they, them pronouns for me. I go way, way back with the Trek. Some of my earliest memories are Star Trek memories. I was just very, very young in my my basement with my family home as a kid in Knoxville, Tennessee. And I remember in syndication, Star Trek, the original series beyond, followed by an episode of Star Trek the Next Generation. And I would just kind of let that play and absorb that throughout childhood. And, you know, as I started to grow, I I got the toys and started to follow along with the show. And then Deep Space Nine came out and Voyager and the rest is kind of history. So yeah, I go go way back and was very, very inspired by Star Trek in many ways. My first play, I do a lot of work as a playwright. My first play was when I was in sixth grade, we uh, did a Star Trek spoof and we filmed it with my friends in, in my parents' yard. That was fun. Oh, yeah, 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 it was great. I have no idea where that tape is, but it was it was a lot of fun. I actually had the uniform and everything because I begged my mom to get me the Star Trek: The Next Generation Command uniform for Halloween that year, and she did. It was, it was great. And yeah, I collect all the toys and everything. I was on an episode of of this talking about that. It, it feels like yesterday, but I'm sure it was like years ago. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, that's, that's, that's me. What is time when you're talking about Star Trek, really? Seriously? Yeah, I, I don't <laughs> even know. <laughs> Feels like ancient history. Mm-hmm. Ancient history? Why, that relates to our topic today. <laughs> so our main topic today is classical antiquity in Star Trek. We got a great email from our patron, Peter. It's a long email, though, so we will share a few key talking points out of it. Basically, the gist of it being... What about classical antiquity in Star Trek? Because believe it or not, it pops up a lot. Now, Peter says, why is it always Greek slash Roman gods or entities impersing them without representation of more diverse cultures? Where did this fascination with classical antiquity in Trek come from? Also said, is it as terrible and misogynistic as in other depictions of classical antiquity in popular culture? Would it be better for Star Trek to make some changes to ancient life to reflect current and future ideals? thinking about bada-bing, bada-bang, but in the real world. Also, he says, 
Does it suggest that there is value in learning from classical texts, myths, and lifeways, or does it signal that they are outmoded and irredeemable? So when we're talking about classical antiquity, we're basically talking about the Greco-Roman Empire from about the 8th century BC to 6th century AD in the Mediterranean area. And Jonathan, tell us as a guest, what's your relationship like with the knowledge of classical antiquity? Oh, well, you know, I'm Greek, so I'm descended from all of it. I, you know, that's all my family. Every Thanksgiving, they all come around, Apollo, Athena, you know, we all just chill. (laughs) (laughs) It's good to know everyone keeps in touch after all these years. Oh, you know, yeah. Well, you you know, you said it earlier, what what is time? Well, (laughs) for gods, it doesn't even exist. So, you know, it's always Thanksgiving there. Yeah. So my connection to to all of this is really coming through the work that I do as a as a playwright and of course you know when you're when you're doing that reading the ancient greek plays is just kind of part of what you do whether you choose to work with any of that material or not that's kind of up to you but I think that kind of reading it is generally a central kind of part of being a playwright or or a screenwriter or any kind of you know writer maybe just as examples of early stories that are usually the the simplest possible versions of of a story in a lot of cases that's not to say they're not complicated but it's to say that you know you can clearly kind of map the beats in an ancient greek drama in in a way that maybe in future works you you can't quite do so easily so it's that. And then, of course, you know, having that background, I thought about it a lot in terms of, of Star Trek. I wrote an article for Women at Warp on Prodigy, kind of mirroring Iphigenia at Taurus by Euripides. And that sort of thing feels very true to what Star Trek has been doing ever since its beginning, basically taking ancient Greek, ancient Roman myth, and working with it in some way, whether it's by presenting it as a thing that's happening over there that we, the Enterprise crew, are observing, or whether it's the story structure that we're actually using to tell this story about the crew of whatever ship. Right. And when we talk about classical antiquity and culture, a lot of the times in conversations about Western civilization, that's seen as kind of the cultural bedrock where all Mm -hmm. of the big steps forward, strides forward in culture were made. Right. I mean, it's a pretty Eurocentric view of it, but it, it there, a lot happened there. There was a lot going on. So it does get kind of mythologized in a way beyond just its mythology. Yeah. Like I think when it's, you know, where did the fascination with classical antiquity and Trek come from question? I mean, the I think that it is not that you know, the writers of Star Trek took a big step back and thought about all the things they could talk about in the world and decided this would make the most sense. I think it was that was what they learned in school was, you know, the bedrock of Western civilization or Western philosophy. I mean, there are obviously stories and narratives that are are enduring for a reason that come from, from Greek and Roman mythology. But they weren't learning about the Indus Valley civilization, and they weren't learning about ancient Incan and ancient Mayan civilization or ancient Chinese civilization. And so that like there's just no was like no reason that that would come into their understanding of like what makes a good story or what 
the history of the world was, especially in the 60s, where we see like most of the references to antiquity. And let's be real, the 50s and the 60s had a whole mess of swords and sandal sorcery movies coming out. You got your Harryhausens, you got your Jason and the Argonauts, you got the Paramount set having a bunch of Greco-Roman costumes and set pieces on loan. Just a idea for use. And so, yes to all of that. And I think on top of that, the other thing we have to keep in mind is that, you know, Gene Ronberry didn't exactly, as far as I know, take a class in, like, TV writing. I mean, the guy was busy <laughs> being a pilot and then, you know, previously in, in, you know, the war. So ancient Greek myth is episodic television, essentially, right? So... Each Mm -hmm. play that you look at specifically, like if you look at the work of, let's say, Euripides, each one is kind of designed to inform the next. So if you're looking for something in just your own knowledge that provides you with a format, any format to tell an episodic story, ancient Greek myth can get you there. And I think what Jera said is important about how that was surely the thing that was taught in school. I mean, it was taught to me in school too, to the neglect of the other myths that exist in other cultures, as as has already been said. But that's what we had. And so without any other sort of training in episodic TV, if I'm reflecting on kind of how to do this, myth provides a pretty good template. Mm -hmm. I mean, it definitely doesn't provide a bad one. Yeah. It's definitely a good springboard point. Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah. if I'm just setting out, you know, tr- giving this a shot, being like, all right, what in my memory banks, you know, can can <laughs> can give me, you know, TV? Well, it's, you know, probably not my life flying for Pan Am, so I guess it's going to be this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think there's there's also a degree to which I mean, it, so it's kind of like like low-hanging cultural fruit in a way or acad- or intellectual fruit because we, you know, we also have like a crap ton of Shakespeare references in Star Trek. Mm-hmm. And there's like, you know, in I've I've talked about before, I feel like too many references to Gilbert and Sullivan entering <laughs> into the future. It's very Eurocentric, a lot of the ideas we have about what is great classical culture in Star Trek. Yeah, or just mm-hmm. like what's intellectualism, like what's high, yes, what's high culture. Exactly. And like, I think we see and we can definitely talk a little bit more about like where Star Trek challenges that and where it like embraces it. But, like, one of the things is, like, for example, in, I want to say it's the game where Wesley comes back from the Academy and Picard's just, like, chatting to him in Latin. And it's like, yeah, everyone who goes to the Academy learns Latin. Wow, everyone has a classical education for a very (laughs) specific culture that doesn't exist anymore. (laughs) Golly! (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I mean, the... Other thing, too, just reflecting on the broad strokes here historically is I think that we see something interesting in the the TOS myth episode, specifically Who Mourns for Adonais, where it can really be used to like affirm the, the sort of correctness of Christianity, which I think yeah. at the time is is a big deal. I mean, if you're looking at just post-Red Scare... We need the good moral Christian values on the TV. Well, right, because when Apollo, in in that aforementioned episode, is talking to Kirk about the gods, you know, Kirk is like, we have no use for gods, the one will do just fine. Kind of backhanded to the non-monotheistic religions there. A hundred percent. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, and so that feels very much like the show sort of saying, 
hey, we're cool, right? As opposed yeah. to actually understanding what the future would look like in terms of a yeah. religious diversity and also the present in the 60s, what, what that would have looked like in terms of religious diversity. Yes. Yeah. And I think we see that even more in bread and circuses with like the sun worshippers. Yeah. yeah. Oh, what a wacky kawinky dink. <laughs> oh, so wacky. <laughs> Secular humanism, though. Secular humanism. <laughs> Jesus. But yeah, we've actually got a lot of ground that we could cover in TOS. I think Who Mourns for Adonais is a good place to start because it shows you where Star Trek kind of starts in relation to myth, which is not to say that other TOS episodes don't actually incorporate myth into the episodes themselves. The Romulans, I mean, exist and, and you know, yeah. they are for sure connected to Rome. They're just the space Romans. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but but Who Mourns for Adonais really shows you that TOS in, in this particular episode is interested in having the crew of Enterprise observe the, the myth kind of in action. And I think we kind of see this in Bread and Circuses too, where the the you know the crew is standing separate from from the myth when we get into talking about like ds9 and voyager we can talk about ways in which the crew is the myth and the crew becomes the myth and so you are then inseparable from the myth that you're talking about but in tos the point is to separate yourself and the point is to say hey look you know here's here's what we perceive of as the myth here's the actual you know origin of it oh isn't that cool let's kind of go on our merry way I think that's because Gene Roddenberry was so conflict averse that like, if you start to become the myth, you better get used to conflict <laughs> because that's all they did. But if you're averse to that, if you don't want to show conflict beyond kind of the, the pettiness stuff, then you do need to stay a little bit far from, from myth. And you do need to kind of be the Kirk that says the myth is happening over there as it does in <laughs> Who Mourns for Adonais. And we're, we're good. With the exception of that one poor woman, oh my God, that which was so, I mean, talk about misogyny. Carolyn, Carolyn. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And if I'm remembering correctly, that's one of the times where the actress had to be literally glued into the costume <laughs> in her sexy Grecian gown. So there were, so there were, that was glue on skin, keeping yeah. the girls from popping out. It's, I mean, her, her role in that episode is, I mean, in, in many ways, yes, we can sort of like laugh at that, but like at the end, when she steps out from the bushes in, in what is basically visual vocabulary for rape, it is yeah, like yeah. terrifying. Yeah. It's awful. Yeah. And she's just kind of this device in, in the, the story and, and we have to sit there while, you know, Apollo is so shocked that this woman would be so smart even though like you're referencing other smart you know female gods when you're talking about athena and so you probably should be understanding that women have power he but... says smart for a woman at one point yes. i think yes. if i'm remembering right it's like dude have you met your sister right <laughs> right so so yeah the the letter that you read initially referenced that that kind of misogyny and you certainly do see it there oh absolutely <laughs> It's also a hundred percent. We can't go back to to who most friends, but I'll just quickly say it's a hundred percent also in a land of Troyes. Yes, where they're like, let's make Greek myth meet Taming of the Shrew and have this like super bratty queen that just needs to be spanked by Captain Kirk. Mm. 
Right. You know, and that doesn't at all misrepresent the myth of Helen of Troy as someone who's basically screwed over by all of the men in her life mm-hmm. and turned into a pawn in a big old war that she doesn't really want any part of. Mm-hmm. It's not representing misrepresenting that shit at all. Yeah. She definitely wanted it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, and that, that sort of points out, I think, where the creative team kind of is on this real lack of introspection or or, or sort of deep reading of these myths or just sort of a a care for kind of the facts of them if you're if you're just using myth as an excuse to get a a woman into a you know tight costume a costume that has to be glued onto her skin (laughs) i'm gonna keep bringing that up because oh my god (laughs) i know and and i mean in a way like there was an opportunity there to do so many things but there are so many wonderful articles now written by black scholars about taking the 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 sort of whiteness out of of mythology and, and analyzing that a bit more closely and i can do justice to none of that as as a white audience member but except to say google those articles because they're fantastic and that's kind of work that would be interesting to have done then you know talking about the the queerness of the 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 gods and myth that's something that would have been interesting you know at the the time i mean granted if you've seen it on tv at the time i suppose you know the world would have ended (laughs) or something but it, it it's there i mean it's in the it's in the source material it's it's in what we have of of the myth and and probably would have been there more extensively had we managed to a keep the library of alexandria and you know b not have orthodox christianity take over greece and sort of expunge all that but there's so much room to explore diversity in in myth and those episodes that we just mentioned with tos seem interested in none of that no not really that's it's more like gladiator have sword where laurel wreath gods make magic lightning happen yeah it's like hey we've got these leftover costumes from the robe we can yeah, just basically. use that in something right yeah uh speaking of leftover costumes i genuinely want to believe that the shot of just giant apollo is a jason in the argonauts visual <laughs> reference because that would have come out just a few years earlier and i love the dickens out of that weird ass movie i did like how they they did have to like compare kirk to like hercules and stuff of course they did of course <laughs> of course they had to reinforce kirk's manliness <laughs> with greco roman mythology yep and also i'm gonna bring it back to helen of troy just for a second because i thought this was a neat a neat little piece of trivia that i put together the planet is named pollux the planet Pollux is actually there's a star named Pollux, but Pollux is the brother of Castor, of Helen of Troy, and of Clytemnestra, son of Leda and Zeus. And ironically, Castor and Pollux are patrons of sailors, which I thought was funny because starship. Mm-hmm. And correct me if I'm wrong in this, but the other name for Pollux is Talos, right? In the Talos star group, I think is also so. Yeah, a yeah. Star Trek thing in in the cage. Yeah, all of those references. Yes, all of them. <laughs> mm-hmm. All the references. Speaking of women who got screwed over, Lita, the one who got who Zeus yeah. went after as a swan, mm-hmm. and then she laid eggs with her babies in them. Well, yeah, I mean that's the other thing too, right? <laughs> like if you look at myth, it's it's you know the the presence of rape in them is is yeah, pretty... it's you can't you can't 
extract that from how prevalent it is in the mythology. And I, I also think it's really funny just when you're talking about Leda, because you talk about her sons, Castor and Pollux. They are Gemini. They are, you know, they're kind of their own entity. But both Helen and Clytemnestra end up becoming these tragic kind of mythic figures screwed over by the men and around them. Mm-hmm. And I, I just find that kind of funny. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can I just add one more thing about who mourns for Adonais? Because it, it stands out just for a couple of, of reasons. And obviously the first one is the, the presence of Apollo. But the second one, I mean, is the poem that it's pulled from, mm-hmm. right? The, the, the Shelley poem mm-hmm. yeah. about the death of John Keats and sort of this interest in sort of immortalizing Keats in, in this way. Now, I don't know, well, I'm sure there are many angles that we can kind of read that from, but this idea that the episode in its title is drawing from this elegy as well as myth um, is, is kind of interesting. I mean, it doesn't, you know, I mean, it, it begs the question of like, well, who would be the Adonais in the episode? Are we supposed to feel that for Apollo, who is ultimately the the one who kind of loses out in the episode. Yeah, I'm not going to lose any sleep over that. No, me neither. But I don't know, maybe it's worth just sort of pointing out in the sense of referencing myth has this lineage in literature, Western literature, for sure, speaking to Western myth, that maybe when you're creating an episode of Star Trek, you feel like you're pulling that forward a little bit. You're sort of extending a number of points in a timeline of, of referencing myth as opposed to, hey, I'm referencing just this old myth and I'm pulling it to the future. You're also making a nod to all the other authors that have kind of done that mm-hmm. throughout our mm-hmm. history, which, you know, there could be a number of reasons you're doing that, but I just think it's an interesting kind of thing. I was just going to quickly say that the original title of the episode was Olympus Revisited, <laughs> which was Gene Roddenberry's like title, like a rough draft title with his concept. Um, he didn't write the script, but then like the concept was farmed out. And then I think my understanding is the title was, was thrown in somewhat last minute and everyone was like, what? Okay, well, I guess so. <laughs> I was just going to say, this episode is basically a Stargate episode, isn't it? <laughs> basically being like, oh, no, these gods were aliens. They, they're, they're, they were all out there. It was all real. But, you know, ye olden people were too dumb to realize aliens. And it's American gods. Of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of precedent here. Or post-precedent, <laughs> Post, considering yeah. they all came after this episode. <laughs> Posted it? I don't know. <laughs> Jared, do you have an episode you want to touch on? Um, I did just really want quickly want to talk about Plato's stepchildren. And uh, we've definitely talked about uh, the coercive control epi- uh, elements of this episode before, so I don't need it to... It is uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, but more I was just interested in kind of what the episode message is about antiquity. Um, the original title was Sons of Socrates, which was changed because uh, people felt that it was more accurate to talk about Plato when you're talking about kind of class struggle. Yeah. Also, Sons of Socrates sounds like a really pretentious fraternity. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't sound really that exciting, honestly. (laughs) And uh, apparently Plato's stepchildren, the reason they went with stepchildren was, um, so Meyer Delinsky, who wrote the script, was like explicitly trying to kind of attack intellectual snobbery as well as social class divisions. And because uh, Plato's ideal society included a type tripartite class structure, which included was basically like workers, 
warriors slash soldiers and philosopher kings. So that's why they went with Plato. But like the Kellum DeForest research that was doing the research and historical stuff for TOS was like really concerned by how anti-intellectual this episode was. It's not anti-intellectual, it's anti-snobbery. Yeah, but they were like, oh my god, you can't just diss Plato. And so they were like, <laughs> Plato's stepchildren, like, don't worry, we're perverting it. It's not actually what should happen with Plato. Um, which oh, I, aren't we clever? I just thought I just thought it was really funny. I was like, wow, I can't yeah. believe they were that concerned about like the reputation of Plato. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if anyone needs defending in our modern day and age, it's Plato. Won't anyone think of Plato? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. He's already become a kid's toy, right? The Play-Doh. I know. He's been through, he's been through enough already, you guys. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's such a great episode to to mention, Jer, especially like when we were thinking about kind of the role of Play-Doh in antiquity as sort of this, yeah, I mean, he he wrote down what Socrates said and then, you know, the academy and his sort of disagreements with Aristotle and stuff like that. I mean, th- those are all, you know, very well taught sort of myths about the the man. I mean, in the writing, mm-hmm. he gets a little more complicated. You know, he's kind of cool with slavery at a, you know, a certain point, which is, you know, not not great. Yeah. <laughs> um, but developing that into the the episode that Jared's talking about there, I think is 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 very certainly important for the the topic that we have for sure. So recently I watched a lecture by a professor, Dr. Hatsavasiliu. Uh, on modernity and legacies in Trek. Um, and it was mostly about the original series. And he was generally arguing that there's a shift between the original series and TNG with the original series promoting modernity through like this episode and, and who mourns for Adonais by having the characters kind of repudiate these classical legacies and being like, we've moved beyond this. And like, on some level, it's kind of sad, but we are in a new phase now. Whereas TNG he argues, embraces and values those legacies a lot more by having like people just randomly chatting in Latin and stuff. Mm-hmm. Interested what you think about that. I mean, I think that that is a good place to start in terms of thinking about the relationship and how that changes from TOS to TNG with classical antiquity. It is hard to disagree with the idea that Picard holds classical antiquity with much more reverence than Kirk does. Uh, I mean, to the point of, you know, multiple scenes of Picard reading the Homeric hymns and and things in that vein. And being super into archaeology and all that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. History is his jam. (laughs) Totally, 100%. So yeah, I mean, I, I I would agree with that. I think that the piece that's maybe missing a little bit is the question of what happens once you merge with the themes of antiquities. Mm-hmm. If you're suggesting in TNG that we haven't really let this stuff go and we're still holding on to antiquity, then antiquity is also still holding on to us in an interesting way. <laughs> and it's still kind of causing some some problems there, which again, I think we see more of in DS9. But I would resist suggesting this sort of binary condition of antiquity. It's either good or bad. It's like, it's a presence and it can possibly be good as it is in Darmok. 
or it can be not so good as it is in, in some DS9 episodes that I'm sure we'll talk about. Yeah, well, and and there's also the point that you raised about how, like, even if TOS was on the face of it kind of repudiating these, you know, myths or saying that, like, we need to move beyond these as humanity, they, in some ways, like, the narrative structures of Greek mythology were inescapable for the writers of the show. So there is that whole other layer that's separate from, like, what they were explicitly saying about Greco-Roman mythology and classical Western antiquity. Yeah, that's true. Absolutely. You know, I, I before we hop too far into to TNG, I, I just want to say that in preparation for this, I tried to map out a sort of roadmap of classical antiquity episodes throughout the 10 Trek series. And I just want to give a shout out to the animated series episode, The Ambergris <laughs> Element. If I don't, I'll really oh feel bad for spending 28 minutes of my life watching it again. So all I want to say is uh, if you watch the Ambergris element, there is a reference to the the Argo and Jason the Argonauts, and it has yeah. kind of a cool similarity to it. That's all. Now we can talk about like, <laughs> TNG if you want. <laughs> Always got to shout out the TAS. I try. It's there. <laughs> they yeah. made it. They, they went mm-hmm. through all the trouble to make it. They spent a lot of money on it. There are some love, lovely moments. There's also some really weird ones. Yeah, yeah, it's true. <laughs> yeah, before we move on from the original series, though, we've we got to talk about bread and circuses. Mm, mm, circuses. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna lump in the arena and the gamesters of Triskelion, both because they have very much that gladiatorial combat theme going for them as well. But bread and circuses is the, probably the main thing we want to get at. So a, cl- a planet where human culture evolved exactly the same way except rome never fell yep and i feel like this episode is ignoring a lot how yeah rome roman influence is already a really big thing yeah also like rome didn't it's weird well yeah it doesn't explain how like how rome never fell it was like yeah because it fell for reasons yeah did did no other empire come along of any kind did did rome like not have like massive corruption and other (laughs) issues with excesses and like supply lines and like i don't know there's all economic issues like but yeah um but now they have a tv show and the slaves (laughs) have pensions and t-shirts with chains on them (laughs) it's funny because they made it cutesy (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uncomfortable well, I mean, right. And the the sort of idea that the Roman Empire never fell also sort of excludes from the conversation, like all the other countries that exist that, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> would probably have something to say about that <laughs> to the tune of some, some empire deconstructing over the years. Yeah, well, and one of the other things that I thought was interesting about this episode is... Well, they have this big debate about like, well, which which type of evolution was better? Like on our planet, we didn't have all of these world wars, but we had like Rome despotism and slavery the entire time. And they're like, hmm, this is an interesting thought experiment. (laughs) I don't really buy this planet, but yeah. And then they also had um, this thing where like the other ship gets stuck on the planet and they force everyone on the ship to prove themselves in the arena. And like, that's how they decide like if the people are going to be able to succeed in this society or not. And like, that was also a weird way to look at gladiatorial combat that you would just like force everyone in the society to undergo it. Because everyone knows there were so many gladiatorial games that had eighth graders in them. (laughs) 
There were. It's called gym class. Have you not played dodgeball? <laughs> oh, yep. It is a pure meritocracy, folks. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh-huh. Sure. <laughs> Goodness. Yeah, it was weird. They were like, they had to spend a lot of time trying to like justify how like the society would have evolved. And so trying to make like a weirdly like juster form of slavery was was very odd. Yeah, watching this watching this episode, I hadn't seen it in a long time. So I was really surprised by wow, there's there's a lot of just talking about how this place works and not a lot of actual fighting or action. Right. Right. Comparatively speaking. Which I mean makes me again think back to Gene's sort of conflict diverseness. Like, I mean, granted, yeah. when the conflict was coming from other people outside of the ship, that's fine. But I do think, you know, these thought experiments were kind of part of his his narrative interest. I mean, yeah. I, I you yeah. know, for better or worse. So I think that uh, you're right. I mean, we don't see, you know, as as much conflict as much action as as we should given the premise but yeah i mean just kind of being asked to like think about this is is kind of what we got yeah well that was also a lot of sci-fi at the time yeah true so yeah it totally makes sense and there's nothing inherently wrong with it but it just was kind of interesting true reflecting i think mostly that the episode just tried to cram in too many themes (laughs) yes by also having the tv theme in there and they weren't really able to do it justice throw all the concepts at the wall and see what sticks yeah for sure that was the real gladiatorial fight there all the (laughs) concepts fighting for dominance (laughs) Oh my god, yeah, exactly. So Jonathan, outside of TOS, is what's an episode you'd like to explore a little more? Outside of TOS. So, yeah, yeah, I've already given my nod to the ambergris element. We don't need to do deep dive into that. Yeah. Except to say, there's some antiquity there. Darmok. I I think, you know, if we're, I'd like to kind of, if we can, go in chronological release order of the series. Darmok, I think, would be a really good one. I teach Darmok, actually. You wrote about it for the blog. I did. Yes, I did. (laughs) And I like that episode very much. It completely, I think, revolutionizes how Trek is tackling classical antiquity. It basically shows us that I think for a long time in our Western sort of narratives, classical antiquity has functioned maybe much the same way that memes kind of do now. There's sort of these references that we kind of drop and we're like, oh, I got that reference. Mm -hmm. And that becomes really, really, really important, obviously, when communicating with Captain Dathan on that that planet. There was a question in the letter at the beginning of the show about why doesn't Trek, you know, maybe wrestle some more with the antiquities of other sort of non-Western cultures. I mean, I think that Trek TNG maybe gave that a shot in Code of Honor in the first season. It didn't really work out. It it kind of sucked. A lot of Code of Honor didn't work out. Exactly, exactly. But I mean, I think that like, you know, those that is very difficult to do if you're not hiring writers of those cultures. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think that... Darmok kind of gives who they had on staff to kind of tell a story that that is certainly still, uh, I mean, Western Central. Oh, you got Gilgamesh in there, so that's you know that 
that's a little a little different than at least the Greek and Roman stuff. Everybody loves Gilgamesh. Sure. I mean, I mean Picard kind of nails it. He's like, let me yeah. see if I can remember this and then tells it all perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> let me just whip this out of my back pocket. Right. Well, right, of course right. Picard would. Like, it wouldn't have yeah. made sense if it was like Jordy. No. Exactly. Or like Riker. Like, you wouldn't expect. I mean, they probably would have made Riker do it because every good Starfleet person needs to have had this education but even apparently (laughs) right 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 exactly but i mean you know darmok expands on the the role that classical antiquity is really playing in culture which is to say it gives us and by us i'm i'm not really being that inclusive when i say us because i'm basically including the us that understands western myth which is not everybody and shouldn't Mm -hmm. be everybody but that us, it gives us that common language. And that is a very, very powerful thing to have those common references and those common, that common language. It also, though, does kind of show you how it can exclude. I mean, there's really nothing wrong with the Temerians. They don't, that they don't know, you know, those, those references, nor vice versa, you know, it's a, it's a question of how do you approach that difference in, in references how do you sit with someone that perhaps doesn't understand your cultural references and try to find some some common ground there? That to me feels like a really kind of complex conversation around antiquity that at least tries to include folks who aren't really in on the reference, which I think is interesting. Also, apparently Tanagra is an actual place in Greece. I just thought that was neat. Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> I go there every year. No, I'm kidding. I don't. But <laughs> Just like a, a super quick digression to say that one type of antiquity that I'm surprised didn't show up more in Trek is ancient Egyptian mythology. Yeah. Because that is, I feel like, another thing we had to learn a lot about, or at least I had to learn a lot about it in school. So maybe I Had just... to or got to? Well, both. Uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, we, we did like Babylon, Egypt, Greece, and Rome, and that was kind of it. And we definitely spent most most of the time on Greece and Rome, but um, that's just one that I'm I don't know necessarily why it doesn't show up more. It's a good point. I guess maybe it has to do with like the whole the because you know beyond the mythology, there's the philosophy connection and the like you know advent of democracy and all that kind of stuff that we associate with Greek and Rome that, that we don't associate with Egypt. Also, just gonna assume that there is a level of racism involved there, probably. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I mean, if they're going to tackle it sort of a la Code of Honor, then I don't know that I'm really down for them doing it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Jared, what about you? What's a non-TOS episode? Well, I'll, I'll jump ahead to Deep Space Nine if that's cool and uh, yeah, do it. talk about, well, I think, first of all, we have to acknowledge the Romulans, mm-hmm. <laughs> named after Rome, or yeah. Romulus yeah. and Remus. Yeah. yeah. And the Vulcans. I mean... That's a that's a thing. Yeah, right. Of course, and the Romulans have a senate that is clearly modeled after the Roman Senate. They have titles like Praetor and Centurion. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that that goes back to the original series. But in um, uh, the episode um, Inter Arma Enum Silent Legus, um, which is uh, and don't correct my pronunciation because Latin's a dead language, people. <laughs> I took three years of it, and I could totally correct your pronunciation, but I'm not going to. <laughs> Thank you for being cool like that. <laughs> I, you know, I do my best. Like, look, it's one of those Picard things. It's like, let me see if I can remember it. But 
Yeah. <laughs> I took a year and then promptly forgot it. So in this episode, um, Bashir is uh, brought sort of pulled into a plot that Section 31 has to set up Romulan Senator Kratak and discredit her so she can't maybe make a separate piece with the Dominion. And so it's kind of convoluted, but basically, like, Bashir has to go to this planet, and, and he he is trying to do what's right, but he ends up just kind of being a pawn in this ploy that Sloane and Admiral Ross have going on. And uh, Bashir gets super mad and, to, like, says to Admiral Ross, you know, basically what's going on, and, and Admiral Ross quotes that line from Cicero, which means, in times of war, the law falls silent. And uh, Bashir goes on a big... Bashirian rant uh, about like, is that what we've become? A 24th century Rome driven by nothing other than the certainty that Caesar can do no wrong? And then Admiral Ross is just like, we never had this conversation. <laughs> I like how the the taking off of the communicator badge signifies that. Like, this is off yep. the record. That thing's still rolling, uh, by the way. Oh my god. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a little creepy, the idea that the communicator is recording what you're saying. <laughs> you're being bugged at all times. Oh my god. It's your your little Alexa that you've got on your uh on your mm-hmm. chest. Yeah. Unsettling. I do I do like I mean this is you know, one of the few mentions we get of antiquity in Deep Space Nine. It's one of the ones that doesn't mention it the most, although like it does allude in like certain other cultures, like Bajoran culture and stuff. There's all in like Cardassian culture we see these references. But yeah, this is like clearly uh, trying to be like, this is the part of Rome that we do not look up to this like corruption and idea that like the might makes right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I enjoyed that. I, I love that. And I was so happy to hear you mention that because when I was sort of tracking the uh, antiquity episodes to series, that was the one from DS9 that I settled on also. Interestingly, it's, you know, when you look at Deep Space Nine, they seem way more interested in the Bible, like the Christian Bible, mm-hmm. than yep. Roman uh, or Greek antiquity. Um, you see that a lot more in the titles and the themes that that kind of come out, especially post-season five. Yeah. Y- you know, and, and to some extent that makes sense for, you know, Ronald D. Battlestar Galactica more. Like, I think that, <laughs> mm-hmm. like, that, you know, he starts you know, delving into a little bit there. And the one, the episode you mentioned, Inter Arma Enum Sealant Legus, was written by RDM. So there you go. I call him RDM because we're good friends. <laughs> That's Ronald D. Moore for, for everyone else. I'm kidding. I don't know. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, um, one that you, Jonathan, brought up when we were working on the notes was Voyager's The Muse, mm-hmm. which has got to be a personal favorite of yours as a theater person. Oh, it's just Muse, because if it's Muse, The Muse, right. then it's the Deep Space Nine episode, oh, and right. no, one, no one wants to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. But yeah, Muse, as a, as a theatrical person, that has to be a favorite of yours. For those who don't remember, it's the one where Belana ends up downed on a planet it and being taken care of by a playwright and we get to see the adventures of voyager portrayed in a greek theater style yeah which is pretty wild it's amazing i mean and just the fact <laughs> that the, the the cold open is the play of voyager's log is is great or the delta flyers log uh yeah. is is great i it is like that muse is one of my all-time favorite trek episodes and i would say that because obviously just personally like you said grace as a as a playwright the the idea that the playwright in that episode has that words can stop wars is a 
deeply meaningful idea to to me. And it is also, when you actually look at antiquity, very possibly the idea behind Aristophanes and behind some of Euripides' work in, in ancient Greece, this idea that they were writing these plays in order to stop wars. I mean, there's there's some basis to kind of suggest that. Specifically, when you look at some of Aristophanes' comedies, like The the Clouds, for example, you see this desire to acknowledge a bad situation, kind of make this gallows humor out of it, to sort of move society past the point where they're willing to kill, you know, for this thing. And that that feels really true in in Muse. So just, you know, as far as what I think Trek really gets right about antiquity, I think that episode is is it. They make some really cool masks to portray all of the different Voyager crew. Yeah, I love I love the masks for the different Voyager characters. So cool. So cool. Yeah. And obviously any episode that develops Bellana Torres more is a great episode in my book. Yeah. And there's so much there about now we really see pretty much the opposite of what we were talking about with TOS, where now we are the myth. For, like in the yeah. most literal sense, like Voyager is the the stuff of the myth, which, by the way, is what it is to us, the the viewers. I mean, we're we're watching this myth get made on our TV sets, and who knows? Fast forward a hundred years from now or beyond that, are we going to be looking back at today and say, "Oh wow, you know, yes, the the myth of Catherine Janeway"? <laughs> Maybe you know, and and great, you know, if if we are. So it it begs us to kind of ask these questions, and it begs us to kind of think about the importance of modern media and modern texts as someone's myth down the line. And I love yeah. that. I love that. There's a great mm-hmm. play called Mr. Burns, which tries to do that for um, the Simpsons. <laughs> yes, yes. In Seattle, they had a bunch of the Greek Simpsons masks on display at the Seattle Convention Center for a while, and they are wild. I love oh, that. Nice. I love that. Yeah. I mean, you know, any anything that can kind of suggest that that where we're at with our storytelling is important, and it it creates change, and we can use these words to affect change. I'm so into that. I'm so into that. Yeah. And I think that is an idea from from antiquity and and I'm not even trying to like put that just on Greek and Roman antiquity. I think cultures and I you know I hesitate to say the world over because I don't know, but I would imagine cultures the world over have versions of this concept of words will will stop wars or words will prevent violence in some way. Mm-hmm. I think it's so funny that we have this episode and in contrast we also have the Voyager episode where the doctor ends up in a museum in the future mm-hmm. where they're all analyzing Voyager with like the most intensely bad faith take <laughs> on them. Mm-hmm. I just think that's funny that we have that as a kind of a juxtaposition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well exactly. And and I mean <laughs> there's they do a little of that needling in, in Muse too, where they're like, you know, isn't this better than all that kissing? And I'm like, ah, <laughs> there's that, there's that poke at the Chakotay Janeway thing. That was, was very funny. Glad to see. Yeah. Yeah. And like, no, what we need is for the captain to go and make a surprising speech instead of killing her enemies. <laughs> <laughs> Always with the speeches. Uh, I love oh. it. Yeah. Yep. It's pretty great. So good. We've touched on most of the conversation topics that we wanted to get on. So are there any any final topics you absolutely have to like touch on before we end today? 
Yeah, well, so I would love to just give a nod to like, basically, if anybody wants to do this kind of extended trek through antiquity in Trek, you know, I think the episodes that we talked about are are good starts. So Who Mourns for Adonias, The Ambergris Element, Darmok, Interarma, Anum Salient Legus, Muse. And then I would just say Daedalus from Enterprise, you know, not that I necessarily, you know, Look, I'm not a huge Enterprise fan, but Daedalus is a, <laughs> is a thing that uh, happened. And myth-wise, it's it it does kind of further this idea that you know we are the myth, except in this case, not not quite in a good way. You know, basically, the inventor of the transporter is essentially Daedalus, uh, and his son is essentially Icarus, and it's it's about him kind of coming to terms with the. The death of of his son and it's kind of an interesting but not until they beat each other up with q-tips <laughs> exactly always important <laughs> always important that always. father-son relationships be ex- explored icarus factor style <laughs> with a q-tip beating a hundred percent hundred percent so if you wanted to stop over an enterprise daedalus is a good place to do that discovery gives us possibly the best 18 minutes of television i would say probably ever in one of their short treks, Calypso, about uh, essentially Odysseus. Aldous Hodge Odysseus. Yes, yeah. yes. Or, you know, craft in the episode, which Odysseus means crafty, so makes sense. And this idea that when you're returning home, your ship sort of can very easily be as much your your lover as your, your actual lover is. And if you don't kind of make a, an intentional choice about that, you can possibly step into some kind of murky territory, which is a choice that essentially Odysseus has to kind of make when he's returning home in the Odyssey. Just remember, when you get home after you've been cheating on your wife, make sure you know if she's been cheating on you. There you go. That's the moral of the Odyssey right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's Never going to let up on that one. Yeah, yeah. No, we, we definitely needed a thousand pages to, uh, to teach us that. <laughs> and then... Yeah, I mean, and I think with with Discovery, you know, they take a lot from the Odyssey when we talk about season one of, of Discovery. If you look at the episode titles, a lot of them are are pulled from the Odyssey, the Mirror Universe, uh, and I believe this was said not by me, possibly by Jared Grace, that the 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 Mirror Universe draws a lot from kind of that Roman the the, the bad side of the Roman Empire, you know, the and definitely from the aesthetics of it, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Totally, hundred percent. And then, yeah, and and by the time we land in in lower decks uh, with strange energies, we're making fun of all that stuff, which is kind of an interesting. Let's talk. Let's talk about strange energies. Just super quickly, I did want to just mention um, another short tracks which shows a non Greco Roman uh, nod to antiquity is the girl who made the stars. Oh yeah. Yes. But that is, like you mentioned, hard to do when you don't have writers from those backgrounds. So, like, the fact that they they did have some writers who had a bit, bit better knowledge of African mythology was helpful. See, see, guys, see what can happen when you explore more than one culture's mythology? Yeah. Neat stuff can happen. Exactly. I agree with Jara that that is a great example, for sure. But yeah, strange energies. Strange energies. <laughs> I mean, it's a great episode, just just like, a, you know, it, and and even better, I would say, if you've gone through this whole sort of trek through through this kind of classical antiquity, I, I try to say trek as many times as I can. And once you get to this part of the trek, you land at a place where you can kind of make fun of it and we can kind of look back on 
where this type of storytelling was 55 years ago and kind of go, haha, isn't that, you know, funny through Jack Ransom, who essentially becomes uh, Apollo in, in Who Mourns for Adonais, in addition to like, you know, the other eagle, uh, you know, megalomaniacs that were uh, scattered throughout TOS. There are a lot of them. There are. There's tons. <laughs> <laughs> There's tons. Take your pick, spit, and you'll hit one. Sometimes you watch the new ones and you're just like, where's a good megalomaniac? I haven't seen one of those in a while. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We are having a megalomaniac deficit right now. Well, it's a supply chain issue, you know? <laughs> yeah. Got to work that out. <laughs> non scarcity makes for a supply chain problem <laughs> with megalomaniacs. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So that one, obviously, you know, it, it stands out just as a direct commentary on on the sort of storytelling structure that TOS set up with regard to classical antiquity. And like I said before, I just think it's it's fun that we kind of land at a place where we can kind of laugh at that and it becomes the, the joke. And I think the only reason it becomes the joke now is because Trek has done all of this other work to advance the seriousness that they put on classical antiquity and they they kind of update that in in ways that are important uh definitely incomplete as we've pointed out through this episode but still there and so we can kind of look back on the 60s and go eh, well yeah that that really just kind of looks funny to us now i like that ransom becomes a god and just makes the culture into the same into his real shallow interests because that <laughs> seems to really fit with the gods we know of ancient yeah. Greece. Yeah. Like there's a line from Who Mourns for Adonais, capricious one minute, benevolent the next. And yeah, that's a great god right there. 100%. So it fits. Yeah. I did want to, um, I know, so I think part, one of the questions that Peter asked, what which we didn't super get into is like, could they have, you know, bada bing, bada banged this a bit more? Like, could they, could they have pointed out the like misogyny in the myths like you were mentioning with like, with Penelope and 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 with Helen of Troy and things like that, I feel like they couldn't like in the sixties. They just were not even aware of it. Yeah. It was just like a given. That isn't to say if we do it again in future Star Trek that we can't do it though. Well, I was gonna say I think like kind of a poking fun at it, like a la lower decks, might be the way to do it. Yeah, because I also feel like to a degree, I don't know. I don't. I don't know that you would need to spend like a ton of time on it. I think you can, like, you know, especially if it's like the mirror universe and stuff, where you're not supposed to be seeing that as a positive example anyway. But in like a lower decks type situation, you could have a character make a comment about like, oh right, that story where this thing happens, like in a way that is making like you just did grace with like talking about like <laughs> the most important thing was to find out whether his wife was cheating on him mm-hmm. after he was cheating on her like a bunch yeah but i think you know here's the thing that we need because i i support that i and i want to see that but i think that this is a place where honestly the education around classical antiquity needs to change first so that we can get mm-hmm. writers who Absolutely. are able to do that you know the way that classical antiquity i think gets presented now is almost like it's a it's a sure thing like you know this is what it is mm-hmm, i mean yeah. i think that uh from that from that certainty or that perceived certainty we derive lots of nostalgia that comes from classical antiquity you know we remember mm-hmm. being taught it in third grade right and in fact the idea of nostalgia itself is in through some scholars traced back to the odyssey and kind of looking back on uh, on this sort of harrowing experience with new kinder eyes essentially at the end of it so we we develop this attachment to classical antiquity through the way that it's taught 
such that we don't we don't want it to be changing. We don't want it to be something that we question, mm-hmm. though we should. We absolutely should. We absolutely should. But I think that it it we need to rethink the way in which we're teaching classical antiquity. And that probably means having more women do it, having more trans folks do it, having more black people do it, having more people of color do it, having more indigenous people do it, right? Like getting that scholarship mm-hmm. as diverse as possible so that we can get off of this kick of classical antiquity is just this sure fixed point in narrative so that when everything else seems confusing, oh yeah, we can always fall back on, let's say, Iphigenia and Taurus because we know exactly <laughs> what that is. And it's like, well, we don't know exactly what that is. Like we can actually question it. And I think that we we need to encourage that in, in writing students. Yeah, more nuance in the, uh, I mean, we've seen like a lot of great like feminist retellings of these myths and, and things like that. I'm a big fan of, of Madeline Miller's novels, um, Song of Achilles and Circe, mm-hmm. but like more nuance in, in the telling of, of these stories, but also more, like more history that isn't just Greek and Rome, Greece mm-hmm. and Rome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hundred percent, or you know, and then then England, Europe, and America when we get into later <laughs> stuff. Yeah, let's just not act like one culture's antiquity is the end all, be all of all cultural antiquity. Right, and and I think once you start to deconstruct certainty, that is going to start to fall away too, because I think part of what enshrines Western classical antiquity that way is the fact that like we feel like it's such a solid thing. And when we start to poke holes in it, we start to ask questions about, well, okay, if this isn't the 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 whole piece that we thought it was, what can kind of fill these these holes that exist? And I think what needs to start to fill those holes is all of the myth that we've forgotten. And like all of the myth hmm. that Joseph Campbell just sort of told us was just the same stuff. Like I think we need to actually do more work. <laughs> than that you yeah. know, and, and actually find, as Jarrah said, the nuance. Fabulous. Well, that's about all the time we have for today, unfortunately. Uh, Jonathan, where can people find more, uh, see more from you on the internet or just in general? Yeah. So uh, uh, Facebook is good. Uh, Twitter at jalexan. Um, I have some some writing up on uh, tour.com as well as Women at Warp, the blog. Those are all places uh, I can be I can be found. So please uh, find me. And Jara, where can listeners find more from you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Jara Penguin. That's J-A-R-R-A-H Penguin. And I'm Grace, and you can find me on Twitter at Bonecrusher Jank and cursing the name and memory of Heinrich Schliemann nonstop. To learn more about our show or to contact us, visit womenatwarp.com, email us at crew at womenatwarp.com, or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Women at Warp. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>